This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I wanted to extend the walls of my practice now almost five years ago so that I could reach those of you who might already be very interested in psychological and emotional issues, to those of you who've just been diagnosed with something or you suspect something, but also to those of you who are just looking for answers and might never darken the door of a therapist or you say you wouldn't. But again, you're on a search, and I'll do my best to answer the questions you have. Sometimes I receive an email that tears at my heartstrings, and this week was one of those times. I'll read you the email. The heads up is that it's about a sudden and totally unexpected suicide that led this emailer to reach out to me about perfectly hidden depression with this question. Can someone hide depression, even suicidal thinking, from themselves? I'll give my unequivocal answer. Our listener voicemail also mentions perfectly hidden depression, but is basically a question about what my thoughts are about going on medication for depression. Now, I'm not a prescriber nor a psychiatrist, so I can only offer general thoughts on this topic as a psychologist, but I can address it. I'm so thankful to many of you for leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts for self-work. This last one said, This woman has changed my entire life. I didn't even realize how traumatized I was or that I even needed therapy before this podcast. Nevertheless, my friend suggested that I listen, and since then, I have a consistent relationship with my therapist through BetterHelp.com, learning to build constructive boundaries and working on my relationship with my parents. I love the space she's created in helping us to understand larger context while providing relevant examples. I love it here. Thank you so much, and I promise you I did not pay her for the reference to BetterHelp, but I wanted to read it because BetterHelp is once again sponsoring this episode. So thank you for your kind words, and let's sit back and talk about, can you be suicidally depressed and not even realize it? Again, as I said in the intro, there are times certainly that I receive emails that tear at my heartstrings, and I received one of those this week. I've changed it up certainly to ensure anonymity, and I'll call the writer Jean. I write to you with tears streaming down my cheeks as I try to come to terms with the sudden and devastating loss of my husband. He was a brilliant but humble man. He was a huge volunteer as well, happy, selfless, generous, and the hardest working man I've ever known. His suicide left our entire community in shock. No one in a million years would have expected this from him. I stumbled across your articles on perfectly hidden depression, and my husband had most of those traits. If this can happen to him, it can happen to anyone, and people need to be aware of this secret depression. I'd love to talk to you about him. I'm desperate to know what happened. I'd like to help our children understand what happened to their healthy, happy, selfless father. I'd also like to ask you, do people with perfectly hidden depression know they're depressed? If my husband had it, I think he even hid it from himself. You can imagine reading that, why I teared up. 
Over the years, I've heard many people say, how could I not have known? Whether the secret was an affair, a porn or gambling addiction, another family in another state, things that once you know, once your partner admits it, or once you put together the pieces of a puzzle that you could never quite solve, at least you can make a decision about how to handle the deceit. Many people make strong statements about what they would do if their partner cheated or they found out something that was extremely hurtful or deceptive. But my observations have been that you really don't know what you do until you're there, until you see the evidence of the deceit, until you experience either the true shame of the person who lied to you or to themselves, or if they make excuses, justify their behavior, or keep on lying. And even then, sometimes you're unsure of what to do next. Life's simply more complicated than that. But what if the secret was the fact that they'd considered suicide? That the idea of ending their own lives was growing ever more persistent in their heads? What if they carried a horrible burden they'd never told you? What if their life looked perfect from the outside looking in and no one, no one, suspected their benevolence or giving or selflessness was acting as camouflage for hidden turbulence and pain? What if they kill themselves before they could ever give you a chance to help? What if they didn't even know or understand that the pressure they felt could ultimately lead them to taking their own life? What if they were no longer there to help you understand? How in the world could you go on? Jean's husband seems to have been one of those people. Experts on suicide tell us that suicide is often triggered by the feeling that the pain someone is in feels intolerable and that suicide's rationale or trigger is that the pain has got to stop. What isn't rational is the fact that their life will also end. It That just doesn't compute, or it isn't really considered. They need to stop the pain. Over the years, I've seen many people whose partners, whose friends, mothers and fathers, grandparents, and perhaps the hardest, children, ended their lives by suicide. And the rates of suicide are exponentially increasing. I'll read you a quote from the National Institute of Mental Health. According to the CDC in 2019, suicide was the 10th leading cause of death overall in the United States, claiming the lives of over 47,000 people. Suicide was the second leading cause of death among individuals between the ages of 10 and 34, and the fourth leading cause of death among individuals between the ages of 35 and 44. And there were nearly two and a half times as many suicides in the United States as there were homicides. And statistics further show that at least half of those dying by suicide did not have a mental illness diagnosis. In fact, NAMI states that this is one of the five chief myths about suicide. And I quote, Many individuals with mental illness are not affected by suicidal thoughts, and not all people who attempt or die by suicide have mental illness. Relationship problems and other life stressors, such as criminal legal matters, persecution, eviction, death of a loved one, a devastating or debilitating illness, trauma, sexual abuse, rejection, and recent or impending crises are also associated with suicidal thoughts and attempts. But now I say, I am fervently and passionately trying to add destructive perfectionism to be on the list because destructive perfectionism is that cloak of camouflage and it should be on the minds of every therapist in the country. Jean and I talked for almost an hour and a half. 
She haltingly and painfully told me the story of both her husband's life and his death only a few weeks ago. She'd put together a theory of why he might have been so secretly troubled, and it had gotten her attention that when she told friends about these ideas, that her perfect-looking husband, generous, kind, caring, always doing for others, and highly successful, might have had secrets. There were many who still denied that could be the case. She found me and my work on perfectly hidden depression by actually someone posting in a Facebook support page suggesting she look up the term. She did and found the description. That's him. But the question I most wanted to answer in this podcast and in my conversation with her was her last one. Can someone hide their level of depression, even of suicidality, from themselves? The answer is an irrevocable yes. Even the people that have walked through my door, who've read or heard about perfectly hidden depression and who came to me specifically because of that, even they have looked at me and said, but, you know, I couldn't be depressed. You've got to help me figure this out. I know I have thoughts that I don't understand, but I couldn't be depressed. Not me. I have too much. I'm blessed. I'd be embarrassed to think I'd even consider that diagnosis. I've recently landed on a phrase that I hope explains this, and here's the phrase. You may have adapted to childhood pain by unconsciously creating a perfect-looking persona, and now that persona has solidified into concrete camouflage. Concrete camouflage. And part of maintaining that camouflage is the defensive mechanism of denial. What is denial? Before I give you the Mayo Clinic definition of denial, let's hear from BetterHelp. They have a great offer for you for those of you who are seeking more understanding of yourself, more of putting those puzzle pieces together. Here's my and BetterHelp's offer. I'm always honored when one of you reaches out to me to ask, hey, could I see you? Unfortunately, right now, I can only see people in Arkansas, but I do have a suggestion for you. I've personally found that BetterHelp, the leading online therapeutic counseling service, is really a great option, and I've partnered with them here at SelfWork to provide you with a professional, very affordable, and trustworthy source of help, no matter where you live. In fact, BetterHelp has been a sponsor of SelfWork for more than a year, and I can't tell you how much it's meant to have their help and support here on the program. But of course, before any kind of relationship happened, I tried BetterHelp myself. They use only licensed therapists, meaning licensed professional counselors, social workers, marriage and family therapists, probably even some psychologists, and they match you up with someone likely in the same state as you if you're here in the United States. But I want to talk about what really stood out for me. I saw two different counselors, or (laughs) I didn't see them, but I worked with them. For one thing, it was very convenient, and they both tried their best to meet my schedule. The second thing was, you know, those of you on the podcast often write reviews or send me emails that say, hey, I really like that you make direct suggestions on what to try, real tangible recommendations. And the two counselors I tried did that as well. It's not that empathy and a listening ear isn't valuable. Sometimes we all can benefit from working through emotions in a safe relationship. However, I believe you get hope when you see yourself handling emotions that previously you couldn't Or maybe you speak up in meetings where before you didn't care enough to, or maybe your confidence was shot. You want to be able to see real change in yourself. Both of them actually offered worksheets for me to use to get a little deeper into things outside of the session. So I walked away with ideas. 
You know, we're still in the middle of a pandemic and everyone's lives have been challenged to a lesser or greater extent for a year or more. So that's the backdrop we all have to deal with. And BetterHelp wants to be there for you. But also because you listen to self-work, you do have a really good offer for them. You'll receive a 10% discount on your first month of service if you use this code. TryBetterHelp.com slash self-work. That's TryBetterHelp.com slash self-work. And you'll find a counselor uniquely chosen for your preferences and needs. And then, of course, write me and let me know how it goes. If your first counselor isn't a great fit for you, they'll find somebody else, just like in non-online therapy. And after all, so many counselors are only working online these days, and BetterHelp isn't expensive. So try BetterHelp, because reaching out can be so vital to your mental health. Here's the Mayo Clinic definition. If you're in denial, you're trying to protect yourself by refusing to accept the truth about something that's happening in your life. This can be highly protective and helps your mind and heart to adjust to some harsh or unwelcome reality. In some cases, initial short-term denial can be a good thing, giving you time to adjust to a painful or stressful issue. But it might also be a precursor to making some sort of change in your life. Denial has a dark side. Refusing to acknowledge that something is wrong is a way of coping with emotional conflict and anxiety, threatening information, emotional pain. You can be in denial about anything that makes you feel vulnerable or threatens your sense of control. And you can be in denial about something that's happened to you or to someone else. When you're in denial, you don't acknowledge a difficult situation. You try not to face the facts. You downplay the possible consequences of the issue. And I would add further that you rigidly compartmentalize the emotions that you had at the time and you stuffed them away so well, so well, that your mind refuses to even acknowledge them. Denial is a very basic form of defense. It's as if whatever happened didn't happen because you don't feel the emotions that it brought. You've compartmentalized them. And denial is very prevalent in perfectly hidden depression. It's what keeps you hidden from yourself, your problems minimized, discounted, or even unconscious at this point. But when denial suddenly doesn't work, when some emotion is so painful that it breaks through a wall of denial, then suicide can very quickly become an option, again, in order to end this pain that you don't know what to do with. The way your feeling doesn't make sense Denial has kept you from feeling it, and now the pain has to stop. Perhaps I should mention here that there's a difference between what's termed high-functioning or smiling depression and perfectly hidden depression or destructive perfectionism. The way I think about it, when and if you have high-functioning depression, you know you're depressed. You may have sought treatment or are on medications for it. You might be in therapy. But your depression either isn't so severe or you've learned skills to manage it very well that you can put on a smile and go about your day and get your responsibilities done. This in no way discounts the difficulty of doing this. You might even have to fight the demons of suicidal thinking as well. But it's different from what I'm terming perfectly hidden depression. That is, it can be perfectly hidden even from you. Again, remember our phrase that your persona, the front you put up to handle emotional pain, has solidified into concrete camouflage. 
and where high-functioning depression involves smiling consciously to get through your day, the person who experiences perfectly hidden depression is largely unconscious of what has become a highly entrenched and silent process of hiding. Tears came to my eyes as I heard Jean's story and that of her husband. She and her family and friends have a long way to go. I've asked that we keep in touch, and I think we will. I gave her names of people who were experts in grieving and ideas about others she could turn to for thoughts and potential answers. I gave her my own ideas about the history she was able to tell me while also respecting that there was no way for me to know what had happened. I could only make a couple of educated guesses. Please, if you're a clinician, look at my Psychology Today article from last month about some very tangible things you can do when you're taking a history or doing treatment that might alert you that this kind of problem exists. I'll have the link in my show notes. First, though, how you can see through this armor of perfectionism, this concrete camouflage, you simply need to be aware of its existence and respect just how firmly it's in place. Know that it'll take time, but with patience, you can help someone see it. Or if you're someone with perfectly hidden depression, you can begin to open up carefully, one small step at a time. If a therapist challenges too soon, the perfectionist will need to keep their defenses up. So obviously there first needs to be trust between you and your therapist. And if you're a friend or you know someone whose life is devoid of emotional vulnerability, you just never see them get upset about anything, you've never seen them cry, you've never seen them look sad, then you can reach out carefully as well. Most likely they are very lonely, but don't know how to ask for help or even accept it if offered. As one woman put it, the thing that I know I need the most is the thing I haven't a clue how to accept, and that's someone else's attention and compassion. The wall I've put up is both my safe place and my prison. Please, I don't want there to be any more people like Jean's husband or a woman I've also talked about whose name was Patricia. I've heard about too many of these people. Please reach out if you are one and try to be aware if you know someone like this and approach gently and carefully. Our listener voicemail today is from someone asking a question about how and when I might suggest medication, what she terms filling in the gap between self-pity and depression. Dr. Rutherford, do you suggest a short-term medication to get someone over the hump of perfectly hidden depression to bring their prefrontal cortex online to be able to not fall into the gaps of self-pity and depression? When someone comes to see me for classic depression, they may or may not already be on medications. As I cannot prescribe, I usually ask what their feelings are about meds, and usually people have an opinion. If there's a hesitation about medications, I usually address it if it's a non-emergent situation by saying something like, well, let's work together for a few sessions. If you're not seeing improvement, we might need to consider checking out possible meds, but we can determine that then. First, it gives an incentive to work hard in therapy. Second, it respects the fact that they may be leery of medications. And third, I'm just so tired of advertisers selling the public on the idea that one more medication is the answer. 
when in my opinion they can be helpful, certainly if the patient has very little to no mental energy or to even use therapy well because they can't regulate their emotions, but they're not always needed or preferable. What I see clinically when a medication works well, and I'm mostly here talking about SSRIs like Prozac or Lexapro, some of those. I see a greater mental focus and mental energy to be able to explore the reasons someone is depressed, whether that's a divorce, a death, whatever brings them in. Also, in general, meds can positively affect sleep and lessen feelings of being overwhelmed by increasing the ability to emotionally regulate. I also wanted to address the idea that the point of a medication would be to avoid self-pity. Self-pity, believing yourself to be a victim, is just not promoted in therapy. Now, I'll be quick to say that real victimization, being abused or neglected, is often talked about and validated for what it was and the damage it did. But staying in self-pity doesn't help anyone. But I've never really thought about a medication being promoted as a way of avoiding self-pity. I just don't see it functioning like that. That's usually more of a character trait or something that someone's learned to do to see themselves as a victim. And your job as a therapist is to empower them. I don't think medications can do that necessarily. It can maybe help give them clear thinking, but that's about it. The listener's question also mentions perfectly hidden depression. I'd probably be very leery of mentioning medications too quickly to someone who might be sticking their toe into the waters of therapy in the first place. And folks with perfectly hidden depression don't have a problem with self-pity. If anything, they have distinct trouble feeling much empathy with themselves at all. And as this episode focused on, they're much more likely to be in denial and discount whatever past abuse or damage to themselves occurred. Thanks so much for the question. I will add that personally, I've been on medications for depression twice in my lifetime. Once was very short term, the other more like for about two years. Both times, they were very helpful. And for my anxiety disorder, I carry around a beta blocker with me for a kind of insurance if I feel that my panic might get out of hand and I don't take it near as much as I did, which is great to say. So personally, medications have been useful in my life, but they don't do the work for you. You have to do the work. I want to thank you all so much for being here. I appreciate it more than you know. So much is going on in our world that sometimes I think, well, is this issue of perfectly hidden depression really important? And I know that it is. So I ask that you give it enough of your emotional awareness and your understanding to see if anyone in your world might fit criteria. I will have the link to the 10 traits of perfectly hidden depression in the show notes, and you can review them if you'd like. There are plenty of ways of getting in touch with me. My email is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and if you subscribe there, that's a really easy way of keeping up with this podcast and my blog post as I give you a weekly newsletter that includes both of them. Of course, Perfectly Hidden Depression, my book, is on sale at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can get it at your local bookstore and give them a little business. It's available also in ebook and audiobook. And of course, we're almost to 1,000 reviews on Apple Podcasts for self-work. Trying to get there before I've been on the air for five years, that would just be fun. 
Again, thank you for being here. Please take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.